The Azim Rafiq case was cricket's Colin Kaepernick moment, a moment of searing reckoning triggered by one man's unrelenting commitment to stand up for what's right. A moment to pause and reflect on how key pillars of the sport, inclusivity and inherent humaneness, had been eroded. The Pakistan-born Yorkshire spinners' whistleblowing helped shed light on the darkness deeply seated in English cricket. Institutionalized racism. Rafiq's crusade first began in 2017 when he made complaints of bullying to the Yorkshire board. But perhaps it really began when he was pinned down as a 15-year-old Muslim boy and had wine poured down his throat. It's a traumatic story and Azim's bravery lies in his vulnerability to share this at every juncture. A man irrevocably linked to the Azim Rafiq case is journalist George Dubell, whose tenacious reporting first helped bring the case to the fore and then helped take it far. From pressurizing the Yorkshire County Club into revealing the findings of their investigation into Rafi's claims, to giving evidence at the DCMS committee in front of members of parliament, to boldly calling out media organizations for their racist coverage of the case. George didn't just document the revolution, uh, he was a part of it. Azim Rafiq started the conversation, but it was George who helped spread his message. This August, Azim, in partnership with George, will be coming out with the book titled It's Not Banter, It's Racism. What Cricket's Dirty Secret Reveals About a Society. I'm delighted to have George join me on the podcast to discuss his book, his, relation, his relationship with Azim, and his reporting of the case. George, welcome to Through Another Lens. Thank you for having me. That was a very good intro, I have to say. It's very, yeah, it's a very good intro. Good for you. <laughs> so, George, firstly, I'm going to start uh, with the verdict which came out uh, at the end of last month in March. Um, what was your first reaction when you saw the charges which had been leveled and those which hadn't? Well, that's a really interesting question that no one's asked me. Um, so a funny thing happened that morning. I haven't told anyone this, I don't think. Azim phoned very early that morning, maybe 6.30 or so a.m. UK time. He's abroad. And uh, he said, you know, the only way this ends today is if the complaints against Michael Vaughan uh, are not upheld. And I thought, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? And he said, um, if they... If the complaints are upheld, he'll appeal. And then if the appeal's upheld, he'll take it to court. And if he doesn't win in court, he'll take it to the High Court. And if he doesn't win in the High Court, he'll take it to the House of Lords. And he may have been right. And so his point was, he was very phlegmatic about it, and his point was, don't worry, you know, for us, this marks an end point. And both of us need to move on from it, really, and uh, do other things with our lives because it's been quite all-consuming. So my reaction to the verdict, if I'm completely honest, I was disappointed with one of them, the Michael Vaughan one. You know, I'm not going to lie to you. I don't think they got that one right. But at the same time, the complaints against the other individuals and the club were obviously all upheld. The club pleaded guilty. And I thought that um, if Azim was phlegmatic about it, then I was happy as well. And he felt vindicated. That's the word he's used again and again. He felt vindicated. So if he feels vindicated, I'm okay with that as well. And I think I, I could mention a thousand tiny irritations or a thousand frustrations. I could. But if I take the bigger picture, you know, stand back and look five years down the road, do I think this has made a difference? Yeah, I really do. I do think that it's a huge opportunity and that the conversation's changed and that no one involved in the game thinks that behaviours that were tolerated five years ago are going to be tolerated anymore. And that the game has really realised that it has an exclusion issue or an inclusion issue, whichever way you want to look at it, and that it's acting to, to, to be better. And uh, Azim's been a huge part of that. And um, so it, I think it's been worthwhile. 
And, you know, I was thinking it's, I think this is something you'd mentioned in a piece you'd written as well, that I guess the charges against Vaughn not being upheld uh, kind of took away from the fact that seven out of the eight other people had their charges upheld, you know. But it's still, I think, from an optics position, I think Michael Vaughn, given, you know, Ashes winning captain, still so relevant today in cricket as with his broadcasting career, uh, did the fact that his weren't kind of from an optics perspective really dampen the impact? Of course, Azim said it didn't and for him, but from a wider perspective, do you feel there was a bit of that? I do, actually, yes. I think that's um, a, a fair observation. I don't think Azim does. I think, you know, he and I differ on that one. Uh, it, as I say, he's very phlegmatic and he genuinely meant all the way through that it wasn't about individuals. The frustration for me, I suppose, was that um, that verdict gained so much attention that the casual observer could have been seduced into thinking that, you know, everything Azim said was nonsense and that, that there was no issue at Yorkshire. Now, I know that anyone who scrapes at the surface of the story knows better than that, but it was used and exploited by people, I guess, who wanted to make that point. Now, does that matter? Probably not. Probably not, because there were always some people who were going to, you know, as he always makes the point, he could have worn body cam footage, and some people would still find a way to deny and diminish what he what he went through. And, and one other thing that was positive is that Michael Vaughan put out a very gracious statement, uh, which, uh, for a start, led with observations about what Azim had been through, and talked about, uh, you know, it made no attempt to diminish what had happened at Yorkshire. Um, obviously was delighted that he was cleared, which is completely reasonable, but didn't try and use that to suggest that nothing untoward had happened at the club. And I thought, I thought the tone of that was terrific, and I thought it was constructive. And I think in that spirit, we probably, you know, look to the future rather than continuing to have arguments about the past, some of which we've won and some of which we've lost. Do you think that Michael Vaughan right now, I think obviously, I think he will be always linked to this case and whatever he does going forward. But um, can a line just be drawn under this? Uh, can he, you know, move on with his life? Do you think that this shadow will always loom over him? I don't know. Honest answer, I can't give you a uh, an intelligent, informed answer. I don't particularly know him. I don't. Um, so, I, and he's not. How can I put this? Um, he's not really my concern. Um, but I would say that he could certainly be a very prominent voice for good and for change. You know, he is clearly a man with many positive qualities and lots of. Uh, you know, an illustrious history, but also a man who has admitted that he's learned quite a lot over the last decade or so and acknowledges mistakes. Well, that's great. But that is basically where we all are. I mean, he and I are probably about the same age and probably have had lots of similar experiences. And uh, to some extent, when he talks like that, he is talking for the experience of a lot of cricket lovers in England. So, you know, things we grew up uh, tolerating or thinking we're okay, just aren't. And, and he could be a very vocal, positive voice for saying that, particularly maybe at Yorkshire. So whether, I mean, if you're asking whether some people will always use it against him, yeah. Um, this whole debate is uh, polarizing and toxic. And there are you know people on the margins of each side, I guess, um, who are you could use it to weaponize it, you know? I mean, you just have to look at the replies. I could say good morning on Twitter and I'll get half a dozen people abusing me forever. It looks like it is forever. It just looks like the world's changed. And he'll get it times 10 because he's a, times 100 because he's obviously a high-profile figure. Um, but I do, you know, I do think he, he, he could have a role if, if he so chose in being a sort of role model for the learning and change that our game and many of us as individuals have had to go through. Yeah, I do. And, and, and I hope he does that. But, you know, he's not going to ask my advice. 
I think, you know, one of the big themes, like, I was just, you know, looking at this case over the many years, I think a big theme is one of contrition is obviously really strong, right? You have a lot of people, you know, reflecting back on the actions, apologizing, um, you know, saying they will, you know, try to change their ways or acknowledging the hurt they've caused. But it's also created a wider conversation, I think, about, I guess, quote unquote, cancellation, right, of people about, you know, you've made a mistake in the past, um, so you shouldn't stay involved with the sport or in any form. Uh, I think that is another interesting facet of this, right? With Michael Vaughn's so-called cancellation, you have some of the other people who have been accused talking about, oh, you know, this is going to impact my career opportunities. This is going to impact my family. Um, If Michael Vaughn, let's say the charges were upheld against him, would he just be kind of completely removed. There were questions about whether the BBC should continue with him. Um, you know, like I know, for example, in India, he's a pretty prominent uh, analyst on Buzz, and he continued going and covering with the IPL. Uh, so I want to understand where you land on cancellation as a whole. And like, is it fair? Is it not? You know, people sometimes talk in, in terms of black and white. So you talk of cancellation which suggests that someone's never going to have a profile or anything. I mean, I mean, I think he has talked about cancellation. You know, I'm reluctant to talk about him a bit because, um, for one thing, I, I do respect that he's been through a process. He's been through his hearing. He's been cleared and he has the right to move on. I genuinely respect that. And so I don't want to be uh, dragging him back into it. Having said that, you've asked me a question. I don't want to duck it. I, 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 when I hear about cancellation, I quite often hear it from people who have newspaper columns or, or a platform on TV. And I don't know what cancellation looks like, but I suspect it doesn't look like that. If you mean should people be held accountable, well, damn right. And if that means that uh, companies don't maybe want to be associated with them commercially, well, yeah, that's completely fair. That doesn't mean that, you know, you're deleting their records. I mean, this whole suggestion that life and personalities is black and white is absurd. And we, we could, maybe Azim would be a better person to focus on. Azim, obviously, like me, by the way, uh, is um, imperfect. Yeah, and imperfect on this subject. I mean, I, I, my behavior hasn't really had that much scrutiny, but I'm sure if you looked in my past, uh, there would be things that I've done which I wouldn't be very proud of and which I would, would definitely not do today. And so Azim's stuff came out about his um, outrageous, appalling anti-Semitic comments. And it doesn't mean that he's cancelled. It means that he is accountable for them. It means that he has to face some sort of justice for it and he either has the choice of denying it and saying it was a long time ago or trying to improve himself and be better. And he chose the other. He, he chose to try and learn and try and be constructive, I suppose. You know, that's not about cancellation. So I, I find the term a little bit unhelpful, a little bit um, hysterical, you know, a bit black and white. Um, I, I, I don't I, I, you know, I've never felt because anyone's trying to cancel me. Uh, and I've never, I don't know, I... I think it's just one of those buzzwords that's started to be used, and it it's a bit meaningless, uh, and um, it's it's a bit like woke, isn't it? Mm. Um, yeah, I, I don't think it's terribly meaningful, and I don't think anyone's been cancelled, but but some people have been held accountable. I don't think those are the same things. Does that make sense? Am I, am I maybe no, it does. I it does. myself rambling a bit there. No, it does. I think there is this blurred line, and I think. Like you said, cancellation is an easy buzzword um, maybe to kind of take away from mm. just being held accountable for your actions and facing the consequences for it, right? Whatever they may be. We've been 15 minutes into this chat and so much of our discussion has been just about Michael Vaughn, right? Like that, that is essentially mm. a broader issue, right? It's more of become so much about the individual than the institutional side of things, and it has, and I and I really, I, I really regret that. But can I explain something that happened a long, long time ago? So right at the start, really, um, Azim 
he didn't do the first interview with me, as you know. He did it with the the, the Wisdom uh, magazine, the Wisdom Online, with Taha. And uh, he mentioned that a senior player had said too many of you lot. <laughs> and even when, uh, and then he did it in a podcast, uh, Cricket Badger, and then he said it to me. And even when he said it to me, he didn't tell me who it was. Uh, he, he didn't even tell me, you know. Um, he really wasn't very keen to make it about individuals. Now, then a little while later, I got leaked the Squire Patton Boggs report, which was the um, Yorkshire supposedly independent report. And, you know, I got this in front of me and I'm thinking, oh, what's the story? What's the story? Well, the story jumped out, actually. And it was the complaints against Michael Vaughan had been upheld. Uh, and I wrote it. And then I thought, if I file that story, all that's going to happen is that Michael Vaughan's going to be vilified and you know rightly or wrongly don't you know that, that wasn't the issue but the point was it's going to be all about an individual and not about the entire culture of the club so instead i went with a story so i never published that story yeah i went with one uh, about the p word being used and then dismissed as banter you know so a complaint that hadn't been upheld so it's a slightly counterintuitive thing to have done. I, I went with a complaint that had not been upheld, which it, and I didn't mention who that was against either. So there really, really wasn't an attempt to go after one person. There, there, there really wasn't an attempt to go after Michael Vaughan. But somehow along the way, and I don't know how you avoid it, because you've got to have these sort of accountable situations, the hearing came down to him via Zine. And that's really unfortunate. It wasn't the intention. I know some people think it was the intention to have a, a high-profile head on a stick. It really wasn't. And if it had been, I'd have done things very different at the start. Um, so I don't know. I hope that story sort of uh, demonstrates how we, we really did want to go after the institutions. I, I kind of felt in a way he made it about him. You know, Gary Balance named himself. Michael Vaughan named himself. I didn't name them in pieces, not not until they had. Why did Michael Vaughan identify himself and say I have been mentioned in that report? Okay, okay, again, you're kind of asking me questions that I can't answer because you know <laughs> I am not close to that side. You know, um, <coughs> look, I, I suspect he wanted to get ahead of the story because that's often the terminology that people use, and you know, whether he was right or wrong, I don't know. It's a tactic. Um, I guess he thought it would have come out anyway. It, it probably would have done, but it wouldn't have come out from me. Yeah. I, I just I want to make the point that it really never was the intent, intention to make it about individuals. I know some people won't believe me, but it. I, I, think, I, I think I've given you some you know, demonstration that we really did yeah. try to, to not go that way. And, 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 you know, I chose a story, the first story, it was, and it's the biggest impact story I've ever written and probably ever will written, the one about, uh, was the title of the book, it's, you know, it, it's not banter, it's racism. Uh, and I went with that one instead. And because um, I thought it was so outrageous that this independent report had decided that using the P word was banter akin to calling someone uh, to, to shortening the word Zimbabwe, which, by the way, never happened. You know, this whole thing that he supposedly, as he apparently used the word Zimbo, never happened. There's not even an allegation that he did. It's been withdrawn. It's a complete myth and, and a pathetic one as well because, you know, is there anyone in the world who honestly thinks that the P word is akin to using Aussie or Kiwi? Mm -hmm. I mean, come on now. I, I want to, you know, come back to the point where you took that decision to, you know, focus on the bigger picture here at hand, right? You're trying to decide what is the story which has the wider impact, what the story really is about because – in so many ways, this is such a delicate story. There's so much nuance to it, so many layers. So when you were covering the story, when you were kind of working on it, can you take me back a little bit into what your approach was to it? How did you ensure you stayed focused? Like, what was that like covering a story of this magnitude? Oh. Well, I got sucked in, you know. I had no idea how um, life-changing it was going to be. I, I didn't know. And, and, and I didn't really know Azeem at the start. I didn't know Azeem at the start. And I didn't realize how close we would grow, for example, or how much I would 
I don't know, come to respect him. And also um, how strong he was. So I got sucked in far more than I thought would be the case at first. So there was no great, (coughs) sorry, there was no great plot or, um, uh, you know, I just muddled my way through, mate, honestly. I, I wish I could sit back and tell you I masterminded some brilliant ploy to, you know, break open racism in English cricket. I didn't. I just woke up and tried to do my job another day, and it took over a little bit. In terms of that day with that report, you know, to deciding to do the um, the complaint that wasn't upheld, I'd written the Vaughan piece. I'd written it. I've still got it on my, on my laptop. And I just, I just had a moment. It just, it was, it, it, it took as long to think as it does to explain to you. I just thought, I'm not sure I'm doing the right thing here. I'm just trying. Also, that report wasn't very good. That Squire Patton Boggs report wasn't very mm. good. And it seemed to me that they hadn't been that fair on Michael Vaughan because he hadn't uh, participated in the report. They had sort of concluded more guilt than seemed fair to me. So. It was a momentary thing to decide to go a different route with it. Maybe it was lucky. Maybe it was even wrong. I don't know. I don't know. But there was no great um, uh, plan. But in terms of the other stuff, I got drawn into it because um, because I realised the extent of the problem. I realised that, um, as he phoned me as we speak, funny enough, um, I realised... Um, I guess the key thing is I realized I should have done more and I should have done it earlier. And I felt a bit embarrassed by that. I felt that I should have, uh, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd had quite a, a lovely long career in cricket journalism. I've been very lucky. And I, I felt embarrassed that I had uh, missed this huge sort of elephant in the room, which was uh, the lack of inclusion in the game. And I, I, was, I was very embarrassed by that. And there were a couple of key moments. I mean, there was one when uh, Ishmael Daywood, John Holder, two umpires, phoned me. John Holder obviously being quite a well-known umpire. And they phoned me because they were taking legal action against the ECB. And they felt, uh, they pointed out that no person of colour had been appointed to the first-class list, basically as a first-class umpire, um, since 1992. And I was quite embarrassed by that because they pointed this out to me in 2020, 2021, because I hadn't noticed. You know, I'm sitting in a press box today. I've been sitting in a press box for 20 years and I hadn't noticed. Uh, and I felt that was a dereliction of duty. And I felt I needed to put it right. So um, that's kind of, that was a key moment in taking it more seriously. And then as Ian clearly needed a lot of help, um, the, the powers of the game or society uh, were shoulder to shoulder in preventing him making any progress. You know, if, if he hadn't had, if he hadn't had the immediate attention, he wouldn't have got the pro bono lawyers. If he hadn't got the, the free legal advice, he wouldn't have been able to do anything. Everything sort of fell into place. But the key thing was that he wouldn't give up. Because I mean, if, if there was one message I would want to get across, it was that nothing that happened to Azim was unusual. None of the abuse he suffered. I'm afraid there's, I've heard everything that he suffered from other people and quite a lot worse as well. And I've heard some awful cases. The difference with Azim was that he wouldn't give up. He, just, he, he would not be silenced. Um, and that's been so important. And that has made the world listen. And he doesn't care if some of the people listening to this think he's a gobshite. He doesn't care if some of the people listening to this wishes he would shut up or go away or if they point out his imperfections. Basically, he suffered a bereavement, uh, the death of his child. And he was, I don't know, so despairing, so bereft, that he felt he had nothing left to lose and he just wasn't going to be silenced. So they tried to, well, basically, the first thing they do is try and ignore you. Because yeah, what are you going to do? Get a lawyer. Good luck with that. And then he had two articles published, as you know, completely ignored. Finally, he got an article that gained a bit of traction, which was where I was able to help a little bit. And then they tried to started trying to pay him off. Just wouldn't take it. 
You know, he was offered over a hundred grand with um, a non-disclosure agreement, and he wouldn't take it. Um, and so, what was so important is that all the normal things that would have bought somebody off, and in, and in every other case, do so. And I've got no criticism of people who are paid off, by the way, because um, you've got to do what's right for your family and stuff. Um, but he he wouldn't do that, and so his voice and his story eventually was heard. And I think it shocked people. And, you know, it, it shocked me. Uh, and that's why I got sucked into doing more and more and more because um, he needed the help. I believed in the case and the story and um, wanted to make a difference, wanted to, wanted to make a positive contribution. It, it was a bit of a, the story itself covering it was a personal reckoning for you as well, right? Uh, about how you see the game, how you cover it. Yeah, my own and my own and my own my own faults and failings, which is why I'm not going to be that hard on the individuals. I know they, they won't agree with this at all, but the individuals who have been found guilty, a lot of them are no more guilty than, say, me and Azim have been uh, of similar things up to a point, anyway. Um, so, you know, there's, there's, there really isn't an attempt to go after people; just want the game to change. Mm. And. Is this, this is, I'm sure, like the most important story you've covered in your career? Well, yeah. I mean, uh, it's, uh, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, probably. Yeah, it must be, mustn't it? I mean, I, you know, most of the time I'm talking about things like heavy rollers. <laughs> um, literally going to write a piece on the heavy roller today or tomorrow. So, um, look, I, was, I had a, a, a funny one a few years ago where I was involved in writing about the, the, the election of the president of West Indies cricket. And it was uh, Dave Cameron, the Ricky Skerritt. And it seemed like Ricky Skerritt couldn't win. And I wrote about that a lot. And Ricky Skerritt won. And I like to think I played a part in that. That was a big deal. I don't think people realize how bad Dave Cameron was. <laughs> um, but that was, that was I, I'm going to say, that was good for evil. And um, Ricky uh, very kindly afterwards said that I might I, I hope I played a part in that. And if I did, that's a big deal. Uh, so, but yeah, those sorts of things. I mean, I don't know. There's, all, there's always other things. Uh, most of the time, we're writing about such lovely things and we go to go lovely places. So it felt like it was a bit of a responsibility. But anytime anyone trusts you enough to tell their story, and it's happened a few times, it's happened with Jonathan Trott, uh, happened with Mo and Ali, you know, you, you maybe can shed a light on things when people trust you to do that. Uh, and maybe that makes a difference. Maybe maybe with Trotty, uh, we were able to uh, cast a light on anxiety and depression. Maybe with mowing, we were able to sort of shine a bit of a light on how it was to be British, Muslim, proud of both. Um, uh, but it does feel as if this has been much more of an uphill struggle you know, uh, with those cases, with those stories, it felt um, it felt as if you just try, try and needed to explain stuff to people, and people were listening. With this one, it sometimes seemed that people didn't want to listen, and um, there's been a lot of resistance. But it's opened my eyes to things, and um, yeah, I don't regret it. I mean, I you know, I don't regret it at all. I mean, it's the only thing. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I, I think the only thing I got out of it was the relationship with Azim. I'd have been happy. I think he's a great guy. I know lots of people don't, uh, but uh, you know, I um, uh, he doesn't have to be perfect at all. Of course, none of us are. But uh, as it happens, I think he's a very special person. Tell me a little bit about that. Your relationship with Azim and how that developed. When did he first really pop up on your radar? And what is the relationship like now? I saw him play. Um, <laughs> He's a good player, you know. He's a good player. I saw him playing about, uh, I can't remember, he got help Yorkshire get promoted. I think it was at Chelmsford. And I think I saw him get a 50 and a 5 buff. And he stuck in the mind because he looked like a young Graham Swan. You know, he looked, he really did look as if he could be the future. And, um, you know, so I, I sort of kept a bit of an eye on him. He became a very feisty, smart white ball cricketer. Fell away a bit in red ball for a million reasons. You know, it's tough to be a spinner in England. Lord knows it's tough to be a spinner in England. But he, he earned a um, niche as a um, a really good white ball cricketer. 
But then I, you know, I didn't know him. Uh, and this, um, he, he had done this podcast um, with, the, with the cricket badger, James. And he phoned me and said, look, I, I've done this podcast. I think it's an important story, but it's not getting any traction. Please, can you cover it? Because, you know, um, you, might, you, might, you might be successful in getting a bit more attention. And so I spoke to him then. Um, at that time, Azim seemed like a broken man. Um, he didn't, I had no idea how intelligent he was, uh, because he wasn't, uh, particularly, g'day, g'day. uh, he wasn't particularly coherent or, um, together. And at that stage, I just thought he needed a lot of help. Really. He just sounded like a man at the end of his tether. He sounded like a man who was suicidal, genuinely. And so at that stage, it wasn't a particularly close relationship. It was just a, you know, a sort of nurturing relationship. And he also told this story and everything I checked out well, everything I researched checked out again and again things were checking out um, and so it became an important story but I don't know when when, when it became a friendship I, I, it, it was uh, quite a while later when you know that square pattern box report uh, took over a year to compile and during that time I know that his phone stopped ringing you know he didn't have an income he didn't really have a hope of winning. He didn't, you know, he didn't have a hope of winning. Neither of us thought he could win. And, and, and I don't know, we just kept in touch. And I was very impressed by his, his courage. I was very impressed by his determination. There, was, there were a couple of key days, I can tell you. One was when Yorkshire was sort of threatening to publish aspects of his medical report, which was embarrassing because it had some, you know, sexually transmitted stuff in there, yeah? And he, and he was like, he, he thought, they, sorry, they thought he was going to say, oh, don't publish that, you know, fine, forget the medical stuff, because it was proving when he had been taking antidepressants. It was an important thing. And instead he went, publish it, couldn't give a toss, publish it, just tell the truth, publish it. And I was so impressed by that, because this was a guy who, well, I, impressed, I was so struck by it because it was very clear to me that this was a man who just wanted to get the truth out there and wasn't going to be silenced. And at that stage, one, I realized how determined he was. I realized they were in real trouble. And secondly, um, I don't want to get myself or you in trouble, but some of the evidence that they were producing was a little bit suspect. And one day they made a um, settlement offer. Out of the blue, they made a settlement offer. And I, um, yeah, there were two or three days like that. Also, we, we, we got forwarded some minutes of a meeting which they had originally denied had happened and then all of a sudden you know i've got the minutes um and i said to him that day you've won you've won no one realized yet but you've won and he's like no i don't think so you've won there's no way out of this for them this is this is a smoking gun and it was uh, and so i don't know because for so long it seemed like there was no one else involved. And that's not true because his family have been terrific. James Butler has been terrific in, in some ways. James, James has been closer with him in some ways. You know, uh, it was so dark for him for so long. He phoned James a couple of times at like four o'clock in the morning and gave him the passwords to his phone because he couldn't go on. And he wanted to make sure the story was told. So he, he, he was, you know, several times planning on killing himself. And he wanted to make sure that James provided me, I suppose, with the information to make sure that the story was told. But that's how bad it was. And I guess, you know, when you've been through these things together, uh, that you, you grow close. And, and my admiration for him is terrific. He's, he's so bright. See, when I um, first spoke to him, I thought he was... Um, Cricket mad, very cricket smart, but not particularly bright. I, I think he, he got 10 GCSEs or whatever. You know, bearing in mind, he came to the UK when he was 10. Um, he's a really bright guy with a huge amount to offer, with a great deal of determination and bravery. Uh, yeah, why wouldn't I like him? And as it happens, we make each other laugh as well, and, and have done on, on good days and bad days. And I, I, and I think many times, you know, my role has been to um, support him. Actually, he's been massively supportive of me. And one of the reasons that <clears throat> he's very keen for this all to be over now and for us to move on is because he's worried about my health. 
and um, and uh, you know he's he's making sure that we do move on and do other things. So um, yeah, uh, it's it's a it's a strong friendship, and it and it will be in ten years and twenty years, God willing. For the outside, just looking at this case, the coverage over the past few years, it it, it didn't. It almost felt like it wasn't like you were like a journalist telling the story. It was like you are a friend who is kind of championing another one of his friends' cause here, you know? And, and Well, you know, well, you know, some, I've been criticised for that. And, and rightly, probably, I probably haven't been a journalist first and foremost. I feel like I've been campaigning. And, 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 and that's fine. You know, if that's... I don't care about my reputation as a journalist. I just don't care. I don't... If it was the right thing to do on this one... I mean, it clearly was... You know, it clearly was the right thing to do. It is the hill to die on for my journalism career. That's fine. It's fine. I can live with that. But I, but you're right. I mean, I haven't always been uh, thoroughly professional and uh, dispassionate. I haven't. I'm massively passionate. Uh, and when people say things like you haven't reported both sides, I immediately want to snap back. There aren't two sides to racism. There aren't two sides to Auschwitz. There aren't two sides to racism. There's right and wrong. And so I haven't got a lot of interest in, I mean, I think some of the coverage has been incredible in the sympathy it's had for the perpetrators. And I don't have a lot. I just don't care uh, if, if they apologise and, you know, want to be part of the solution. Brilliant. But um, not everyone's done that. Um, so, yeah, I don't know whether I've, I, I, I suspect my reputation as a journalist is well. I don't know that it's better. I don't. I, I, some, some people think it's damaged. I mean, I, mate, I don't care. It, it was. It's a campaign. It's not. It's not about. It's. It's not about work. Yeah, I think objectivity is overrated. Anyways, there's this quote which. <laughs> well, it probably isn't. It probably. <laughs> yeah, good point. There's this quote which my grandfather used to always tell me, uh, you know, from Dante's Inferno, that the hottest places in hell are reserved for those who, in times of great moral crisis, maintain their neutrality. You know, and that's something which has always stuck by me. And God knows that this was a moral crisis for the sport as a whole. You know, you... well, I'm really glad to hear you say that. I, and honestly, those are music to my ears because I, I've been struck by how neutral some people have been, and a bit disappointed by it. Um, but so, so, you know, I'm really, really glad to hear you say that, but maybe it's because so many of the people that I would naturally think would support me look like me and maybe I've made life a bit uncomfortable for them and me. Um, I wanted to ask you about that, you know, George, um, yeah. covering this case, right. Where a lot of the mm. accused come from the type of demographic you belong to, right. Um, you know, that they mm. are white middle-aged men. They are the ones who have been in so many ways the perpetrators here. But how did that impact your working on this case? How did that impact, you know, the way you approached it, like from a sensibilities point, from an empathetic standpoint? How how did that impact your reporting? Well, I tried to not let it, didn't I? I mean, obviously, it's a bit uncomfortable. There's, there's no way around the fact that life's been a bit uncomfortable. But I think you do have to tell the truth and let the cards fall sometimes, and it felt quite important. But as I say, I, I felt I was going through the journey myself a little bit. Mm. You know, I think that... Uh, look, this all starts with George Floyd. Uh, incredible, though, that sounds. I mean, that was what woke Azim up to want to tell his, car, to tell his story. It is. I mean, and I think quite a lot of people uh, thought that at the same time. And um, and there are so many stories. I mean, you know, I guess the equivalent would be Me Too. Uh, but there have been so many stories that have made us want to sort of question what we thought we knew and the establishment and how things should be better. And you're a bit of an idiot if you haven't learned from this stuff in the last three years, aren't you? If you haven't learned anything from George Floyd and me too, well, I mean, either you're a fantastic, perfect person, which is terrific, or you're an idiot. Because um, there's been masses and masses of stuff for us all to learn. Uh, and so 
I don't see that you're necessarily, you know, uh, go back to something we talked about earlier, cancelling someone to point out that things that happened were not right. I also don't see it, just to be fair, as a, as a black-white or a, uh, an issue between, say, Muslim people and white people, because very clearly, Azim was guilty of anti-Semitic racist comments. You know, no doubt about it, no excuse for it. One of the things I found interesting about that, and this is absolutely not an excuse in it, is that, for example, those comments, I think, were on Facebook, and they had been there for 10 years or something. And Ollie Robinson had similar comments. I think they were on Twitter. And Andrew Gale had comments on Twitter as well, I want to say. So these three sort of figures who had all been at Yorkshire had all felt that they could post basically racist stuff on social media. And actually for years, no one did notice. And what does that tell us about the culture? I think it tells us lots that there was a permissive culture, um, that it was tolerated, expected. It tells us the whole culture, the whole institution was rotten. It doesn't really tell us anything about the individuals. Uh, and it needed to change. It, doesn't, it, it wasn't about, you know, just white people making mistakes, was it? It was about the whole culture being wrong. But, you know, the, and, and during this, um, there have been such brilliant um, moments such as uh, the South Asian Cricket Academy being set up by Tom Brown. So, you know, I can talk forever about, you know, the, the grievances that people might have in the past, but Tom has come in and actually put things in place to, you know, really practically make a difference. I mean, he's a, this is fantastic stuff that's going on. This guy deserves a knighthood. And, and um, every time anyone gets signed from Saka, I send him a message saying, you've changed another life. It's a, it's, a, it's a brilliant thing you're doing here. I don't know how many people it is at the moment. So, say a dozen have got jobs in professional cricket who wouldn't otherwise. And every one of those will change the culture a little bit and make it easier for the next generation. It's a brilliant thing. But, but much more importantly, he's going to change the culture of the whole sport. So I'm, I'm at Edgbaston right now. And Edgbaston has, has embraced his uh, learnings, his PhD uh, conclusions to a huge extent. They've completely changed their pathway. Uh, Yorkshire have changed their pathway. The ECB are going to embrace this stuff. I know they are. That's going to change the sport. Now, do you get Tom Brown get it, making an impact without Azim? Don't know. I, I genuinely, I don't know the answer. I like to think he would have done, but I don't think so. Because he was eating the door down. I mean, yeah, anyway, so there are all these things that have happened which are terribly encouraging, and they're not actually necessarily about racism they're about class and they're about inclusion and they're about money and i'm always careful about saying that by the way I'm reticent about saying that because while class is a huge issue and economics are probably the biggest barrier to entry into the game just because that's true doesn't mean there isn't also racism and i don't want us to ignore the racism um and hey look one thing that you haven't asked me about but I'm, I'm embarrassed by, but we need to talk about really is why is it that it took a middle-aged, middle-class white guy to tell the story? It's not good, is it? That that's the thing, right? Like, how much of you know the issues uh, in the sport can be changed by something like changing the the way diversity in the teams and the way teams are run, but also that in the media as well, right? Where you have greater representation from people who can really help shed light on these issues. I think the media does have a massive role to play here, right? In changing the sport. It does. And the uh, TV media, broadcast media generally actually, has been ahead of the print media. Um, and it does, yeah. I mean, the, yes, I mean, role models are important. They're vital. You know, we know this really, but I think the penny's dropped, you know. I think the penny's dropped. And I think we, we've got a responsibility to, to keep reminding ourselves of that. Uh, you know, I took over as uh, chair of the Cricket Riders Club as well a couple of years ago, I think, um, roughly. And we had a huge diversity issue. I think at the time there was one woman on the committee and the subcommittees were full of men as well and uh, you know I mean the club is full of men 
we've got a huge way to go on lots of issues, you know, on race, on class, on gender. Uh, just one point I'll, uh, I'll throw in there at random. Why is it that there's maybe only one male professional cricketer in England who's openly gay? Can't be good, can it? Can't be healthy. There's only one. I mean, it can't be right, can it? Uh, why is it that in the women's game, people have felt much more able to be open about their sexuality than in the men's game? What can we learn from that? I don't know the answers, but I do know that we're having conversations about all these things now, and I don't think we were three years ago. And that is really encouraging. I think that is the greatest legacy of the everything with Azim Rafiq, right? It started a conversation. People are talking about things. People are highlighting things which a few years ago people hadn't even noticed, forget talking about. You know, I think I think that is, if you look at every moment, you look at someone like Colin Kaepernick, you look at all the people, LeBron James, people who have spoken out about social justice issues in sport. Um, I think the change itself takes years to be implemented but I think the important thing, it just starts immediately as a conversation, right? Um, when I think of something like the Kaepernick issue, right? Him taking a knee was considered such a, you know, revolutionary thing to do. Like it was heretical. But now you have almost every team in the Premier League, uh, you know, taking a knee. And it's just the most, it's the biggest stand which can be taken against something like racism. So I think some of these issues, they take time to really create change and be fully accepted by wider society. On this podcast, I had um, the filmmaker Miles Coleman, who made a documentary called FIFA Uncovered, which is about, you know, FIFA's long years of corruption and how they've tainted the sport. And he said he came away after making it just feeling a little bit disillusioned, a little bit more cynical about the sport and his how his love had been eroded for it. How is your mm. relationship with the sport now? That's a really good question, eh? Um, what a good question. I loved the um, T20 World Cup in Australia. I had a final time. Um, I loved, I mean, I, you know, this is the thing. I, I got to go to New Zealand to watch England play cricket. And England play joyous cricket. I mean, they play crazy cricket. And if you love cricket, it's hard not to love this England side. So, look, I'm not going to lie to you. Have there been days when I questioned things and thought, is it worth it? Yeah. Uh, will there be a few more in the next few weeks? Yeah, no doubt. Um, but it's still a great game, the greatest of games. And I still love it. And I'm at a cricket ground now, and I don't need to be. Uh, uh, so I still love cricket. And, uh, you know, I... I I still love Yorkshire. I still think Yorkshire's, I mean, I'm a Somerset supporter, but, uh, you know, I love the county game and um, I hope that uh, the game is, I just want everyone to enjoy it really and um, it be a great club, Yorkshire, for everybody and, and English cricket to be available for everybody, not not just, you know, white middle class people. I, I don't think that's a particularly outrageous aspiration. And I do think we made some progress. And, and, and generally, you know, I'm quite, uh, I think I am quite encouraged because um, I believe in the, I believe in the good intentions of the people running English cricket right now. Gould and Thompson. I do. Uh, Connor uh, as well. I believe in their good intentions. And that wasn't the case with the previous regime. So I think there's quite a lot to be optimistic about. You know, yeah, have there been days when it's been a bit disillusioning? Have there been days where it didn't feel like we made any progress? Are there days when, I can't remember who it was said to me quite recently. Oh, it was my editor, bless him, Sam, uh, at the cricketer, online editor. And he said, basically, he called me, he said, you're not being the best version of yourself on, on Twitter. <laughs> uh, I mean, words to that effect. And he was right. And he was right to call me out on it. And so there are days when you can let that stuff get you down. You know, when you can find yourself arguably complete idiots. I mean, there's just no point. Uh, but sometimes it takes a friend to uh, remind you of that, doesn't it? And point you in the right direction again, put you back on path. So, uh, yeah, it, it, oh, I still love cricket. I've, I've got no other, I've got no other skills, mate. 
I might go and do something else. I said to Azim, I'm going to go get another job at some stage. What the hell would I do? I've got no skills. I've been doing this for 25 years or something. I, 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 I don't know. I mean, I might paint myself silver and stand by still in Covent Garden and see if people will throw money at me. But it's, it's a long shot. And what do you see as the role of a modern cricket, a modern sports journalist today, right? Uh, I, I don't think you can cover sport today by just focusing on what's happening on the field. But I also don't think you can kind of ignore what happens on the field as well. How how do you find that balance between the two? Well, another good question. I think, you know, people listening will probably tell you that I haven't found that balance. So, I, I you know, I'm continually searching. Um it's been really nice to get back this season to writing about cricket. I've done that a few times this in the last couple of weeks to just writing about cricket. You know? <coughs> and you're right. There's a there's a there's a social um, social justice side to what's been going on in the game, which feels very important. Uh, and and it's felt like it's been my duty once or twice to do to do pieces which are a bit uncomfortable, but often. I think I've probably missed them. I mean, I I think I've probably been behind on some subjects. So um, I don't know, but I think if you're well-intentioned and try and tell the truth, you're going to go quite a long way in the right direction. I mean, if you're asking general rules of sort of journalism, every time I talk to, every time I put myself out there to talk to people who know more than me, I learn something. You know, you have to accept, you don't have to, lots of people don't, but I, I would utterly accept that I haven't played the game at a high level. So in many ways, I'm a fearsome fraud, you know? <laughs> so I'm terribly lucky when um, people come and talk to me. I mean, I, I think you saw Mark Robinson came for a chat while we were having this chat, and I would I would no doubt have learned masses from him. And uh, during this game, I can't remember who I was being at, Trotty has, has come for a chat, and um, Jason Radcliffe's come for a chat, and all, all these people... Um, and they all know more than me. And I learn masses from them. Um, so having those conversations endlessly and trying to um, pick people's brains endlessly, yet still having your own opinions every so often, I don't know. I'm sort of immersed in the sport, you know, and have been for quite a long time. But uh, you're a fool if you think you know it all. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I promise you, you're learning every day, and you should be. You should be. I mean, that's one of the ways, personally, I judge intelligence. It's not about how much you know. It's about how much, how open-minded you are about how much you're willing to learn. That That is one of the key things I look for in other people. It's one of the things I really like uh, about people who are still want to listen and learn. And... Um, you know, there are, I guess there are times I have to remind myself I need to do that, but I very much do. <laughs> anyway, it, it'll be lovely to. I, I don't want to keep writing about the same things. I don't want to keep writing about, you know, uh, Azim. I, I mean, I love Azim. Make no bones about it, I do. But he and I need to move on with our lives. We really do. And um, I, I, I fear that he's going to be defined by this, but he's better than that. And I don't want to be defined by it either. I just want it to be one of the things I've done. Um, that doesn't mean I'm going to dodge the next thing. But, you know, I, I, you can probably imagine I've taken an awful lot of phone calls from an awful lot of people asking me to help them with their causes. Mm. And I can't do it. I can't do it anymore. I can't. I'm, I'm broken and knackered. I just need a rest. Uh, and I just cannot catch every fallen robin, you know? just can't. So I'm saying no to a lot of people right now. Uh, but what I am looking forward to is watching the Ashes. And, you know, if England go out there and try and score a seven and over against this Australian attack, it's going to be a lot of fun, isn't it? Yeah. Was there a level of catharsis after the CDC verdict, after it all ended for you? Uh, did it feel like that a line has been drawn in the sand about this now for you? No, it hasn't, but I'm, I'm hoping that that's coming. I'm hoping that we're almost there. You, you know, Azim, Azim does feel like that. He is like, he is there. Um, and he keeps talking to me about that. Uh, look, I just, I, I'm slow. I'm a slow learner. Uh, 
and maybe that maybe that realization will will dawn on me in the next few weeks um so much has happened you know there's been so much going on uh, personally and uh, career-wise that um sometimes you need to take a moment and uh, reflect big big believer in reflection uh, and and see where you are but um it doesn't I, I would love to be to feel that i'm able to withdraw from it a lot more now and i do you know azim's book is done it's finished um i'm if i'm honest i'm sort of dreading when it comes out because it will review revive all these conversations I, you know i'm torn between you get some guy like simon jordan going on twitter and saying that you know insinuating that i'm avoiding uh, a debate i ain't running from anyone i'm not avoiding anything but i do want to move on so i'm torn there between wanting to you know i'm not running away and i can get drawn into things so bloody easily by that attitude uh but at the same time i really do need to uh, do other things and to concentrate on to, uh, you know um on the mess i've made in other areas of my life <laughs> in the last couple of years so um uh, it would be a nice thing to to think that it, it was over and that it wasn't the only reason that anyone was ever going to talk to me again you know you know what i mean i'd like to think mm -hmm. uh, I actually think I could do other things, you know, talk about other things in cricket. Lastly, George, just tell me a little bit about the book. Uh, what are, what's the ground it covers? What was the process writing it like? And uh, yeah, what can we expect from it? I took a week or so off last summer <coughs> and wrote, I just went away and uh, sat at a desk overlooking the sea and wrote a lot. Uh, and a lot of that has ended up in it. That was probably. Yeah. Um, it, one of the things we wanted to do is uh, he used an expression at DCMS out of the blue. He, he said he wanted to be a voice for the voiceless, which I bloody love. And he said it out of the, it just took me by surprise. It, I tell you why it made me laugh because the first few times I spoke to him, he was so broken and uh, so lacking in confidence that he seemed quite ineloquent. And I had no idea how intelligent. He was. And then suddenly you hear him arguing with lawyers about technical details. or um, And he's brilliant. He's so bright. He's so much brighter than me. And he, anyway, he came up with this expression. Um, one of the things that we had realized is, quite by chance, how his story had resonated with people. So there are sections in the book where I've spoken to high court judges. Uh, top police officers, doctors, um, a uh, Yorkshire spectator, people from lots of different walks of lives, all of whom have suffered racism in a very similar way to him and felt empowered to talk by his experiences. Um, and, 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 and it was about, you know, the difference he made to those people and, um, you know, the story beyond cricket, really. That, that's the bit that's stuck with me most. Also, there's a bit in it where I started to research the history of sort of racism in Yorkshire cricket, and it was stunning. It was it, it was another reminder. I mean, oh, my God, what had I been doing? I can't believe I didn't know how bad things were. It's awful. You know, in Ian Botham and Viv Richards and Imran Khan were calling this stuff out in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. Uh, and I don't, we, we hadn't really done anything. The club hadn't done anything. It very much reminds me of the Met Police, uh, Yorkshire cricket in particular, English cricket as well. I've learned so many things. I've read so many studies. I can't remember the guy's name off the top of my head, but there's a super study on Haringey cricket. And it is appalling what happened there. You know, there was this wonderful college producing cricketers, most of them African-Caribbean heritage cricketers. And it only needed 10 grand to survive. And the ECB just, yeah, I don't know, decided to not help it but the i mean if you were generous you would say they were passive if you were generous um but that yorkshire and english cricket reminds me of the met police reviews there was the mcpherson report and uh well, all these reports every 10 years there's another report into the met police and they all say the same bloody thing change it so this is our opportunity and i honestly think we're going to take it i do i think the game's going to take it uh, and if it does it makes it all worthwhile it means it will be better for the next generation, but that's 
that makes it all clear, doesn't it? You've, you've come to this whole thing, but you still hold out for a lot of hope still. You know, like there's still a lot of hope you have in the game and the people running it. Do you know, yeah, but do you know why? Because it's logical. Because if you do a Venn diagram of racists and idiots, it's an eclipse. We win the argument because it's logical. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, George, thank you so much for joining me on Through Another Lens. Uh, this was an incredible chat. And uh, yeah, thank you for being so vulnerable with everything you've shared today. Really good interview. Thank you for having me. And uh, yeah, I'm sorry. I, I hope I, wasn't, I didn't drone on too much, but I'm looking forward to working with you in the next yeah. few weeks. And I think we're, I think we're doing the, the Headingly Test Match together. Yeah. So that'll be a lot of fun. Yeah, exactly. I uh, can't wait. And thank you so much, listener, for tuning into this week's episode of Through Another Lens. Make sure you follow it wherever you get your podcasts. If you could, please give it a rating. It helps more people discover it. And if you're new here, check out some of our past episodes. A couple of weeks ago, I did an episode with the Rajasthan Royals head of content about the content revolution taking place in the IPL. Uh, so you might want to check that one out. Some of the other guests in the show include Miles Coleman, who joined the pod to discuss his Netflix docuseries FIFA Uncovered. Andy Brassel was on to discuss his book Football Murals. Uh, BBC News producer Simon Wallman was on to discuss how the BBC produces and packages the World Cup. So lots of fun stuff for you to dive into on the feed. Uh, we're currently doing a weekly series reviewing each new episode of the Apple TV show Ted Lasso. Uh, so you might want to check that out too.